Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, there's a little Spanish church that became famous in 2012. They had this this beautiful fresco, like a painting of Christ on the wall. The painting was called Ece Homo, and uh, over the years it had suffered some water damage. Okay, so it had cracked and become kind of distorted. And, and so somebody in the church decided to do something about it. And wouldn't you know it, it was this sweet old lady who took it upon herself. She grabbed some paints and she grabbed a brush and she set out to fix it from memory. Well, here's what the original looked like. Okay, here it is after years and years of water damage. So it was in rough shape. And now here it is after the church lady got a hold of it. Now, the result is what some people have come to call the potato Jesus or the monkey Christ. The monkey Christ. Now, if she were 20 years old and were using, say, spray paint instead of brushes and, and paints, she might have been arrested for graffiti. But we, she gets a pass, actually, because she's just a sweet old lady who meant well. But she has no art background. She has no training. And the result, it's almost unrecognizable. Like if she's taken it upon herself to be an artist trying to show us Jesus, what she actually achieved is is the opposite. And she made it really hard for us to recognize him. And all the people who used to come from all around to see this priceless masterpiece, now they they find that it's ruined. In fact, now people travel from, from miles around in order to see the monkey Christ and have a laugh. And you know, I think that that's actually a pretty good metaphor for what's going on in today's woe. This is a hard one. This is a hard warning. These are, these are some of the harshest things that we will hear Jesus say in all of scripture. But it's, he's, he's saying, a, he's got a very stern warning for the Pharisees who you might say, worship a monkey God. They've come up with a monkey God that they worship. They think they've got God all figured out. And, and yet here they are, they're face to face with God's Messiah. And not only do they fail to recognize that it's him, not only do they fail to recognize that he, Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to kill him. And, and, and that's really important background for this, this morning's woe. This is the seventh and the final woe in our series. We're going to wrap it up next week. But today what we're asking is, how does it happen that God's people can fail to recognize him? How does that happen? And could that happen to us? Could we fail to recognize Jesus? Like, what does it take for us to recognize Jesus? So let's let's talk about this woe. There are three parts that I think are going to help us to understand it, three observations to make. One is about the Pharisees' blindness. Then we need to make an observation about the wrath of God and then a warning to the church, okay? So the blindness of the Pharisees, the wrath of God, the warning to the church. Well, let's begin by noticing what Jesus says to the Pharisees about their blindness, their blindness. He tells them that they spend their time decorating the graves of the, the, the dead prophets, okay? So they're at the, at the cemeteries, they're at the tombs, and they say to the culture, you know, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Like, never again, guys. 
like lest we forget, like that could never happen in our day. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, no, 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 you testify against yourself that you are the descend- you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. You are. You have learned nothing. You think that you're different. You are not. You're no different from the same leaders who killed the prophets, whose tombs you now decorate. And Jesus wants them to know, that's, that's you. And I think in some ways, this is happening now. This is happening now that we have people who are religiously blind, who believe they've learned the lessons of the past, but who really haven't. And there's lots of examples that I think we could use, but one is a, is a movement that it's become popular today among mostly young, white, kind of left-leaning evangelicals called deconstruction. How many of you have heard that word before? How many of you are familiar with the language around deconstruction? Have you, are you familiar with this? Yeah. So there's a lot of different writers and speakers and teachers who are part of this movement. And it actually has lots of good, there's lots to commend it. And we'll talk about that in a second. But we just want to make sure we understand what deconstruction is about. Well, there's a, one of the key voices in the movement is a, is a life coach called Curtis Vanderpool. And here's how Curtis explains what deconstruction is about. So listen to this. He says, we are disentangling our limited view and understanding of scripture as the main authority in our life. And we are recalling that even Jesus said, I am sending you a helper, not a book. So Curtis says, deconstruction leads us away from the idea that we have to have all the right answers and live them rightly in our lives and toward a faith that relies on the freedom and grace and discipline of Jesus. Mostly, he says, deconstruction allows us to let go of the idol of certainty and dwell in the paradoxes of life and death, freedom and servitude, grace and justice, love and truth. So to him, that's what deconstruction is about. You know, there's there's many who are in this deconstruction movement who believe that deconstruction is the unfinished work of the Reformation of the 1500s and 1600s. They believe that they stand in that tradition and are continuing what was left unfinished in the Reformation. Well, one of these leaders, one of these teachers is, a, is, a, is one named Eric Scott English, and he blogs over at The Unenlightenment. And he says that just because the term deconstruction is not mentioned in historical records doesn't mean that it didn't occur. In fact, the catalyst for both Luther and Calvin's Reformations was their own deconstruction journeys. You hear that? He's making a direct connection between the Reformation and deconstruction. Now, in fairness, we got to say, there are some who will go through the process of deconstruction who are going to end up with a, a, a more authentic, Jesus-like faith. I believe that that's true. But in my experience, most are going to end up far worse than they started. And they will be untethered, and, and bitter, and some, are, some will be angry, and, and many will be spiritually homeless, but they've been taught, they've come to believe that what they've done is something new and subversive and important and, and historic. Now, am I saying that people who deconstruct are all Pharisees? No, I'm not saying that. Am I, decon- am I condemning deconstruction as a movement? No, I'm not doing that. What I am trying to do, though, is make a cultural connection and say... There are flaws in this thing. Deconstruction 
calls certainty an idol, and they're pretty certain that they're right about that. You see, they call certainty an idol, but that itself is a statement of certainty. Now, I could be wrong, but it seems to me they've just replaced the hypocrisy that they dislike in evangelicalism, among many evangelicals, with the relativism of the ex-evangelical sort of deconstruction movement. And I just don't think that that's better. And I think a lot of you know people who are going through deconstruction right now. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, we do. And if I were a 20-year-old, you know, Christian, and if I set aside my Bible, and if I backed away from churches, and if I called that a deconstruction, or if I called that reformation, I would hope, I would, I hope that somebody, I hope somebody would come along and would say, you know, man, this, this isn't reform what you're doing. This isn't reformation. This is not something that the reformers would endorse or bless. This is not the way of Jesus. And I think in the same way, bringing it back to the Pharisees, I think in the same way, imagine if Elijah or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or on and on and on, all the prophets, imagine if they were there face to face with the Pharisees, they would not high five the Pharisees and give them fist bumps and like say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. What you're doing is so important and necessary. They would call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. That's what they would do. They'd call the Pharisees a brood of vipers because they're not progressive. They haven't learned any of the lessons. They're just repeating it. They've exchanged one set of problems for another. They decorate the prophets' tombs to show that they they think they're very different from their ancestors. But really, they're blind. They're blind. Well, from here, the text forces us to sort of switch gears and, and, and talk about something that's Probably not your favorite subject, but but it's God's wrath. We need to talk about the wrath of God. Now, the last person who spoke to the Pharisees this way before Jesus was John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, we read that John said to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, it's almost the same, right? It's almost the same curse. It's almost the same condemnation. John says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? But Jesus' words to the Pharisees, they're they're very similar, but they go a little bit further. Jesus says to them, he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? How will you escape being condemned to hell? Says Jesus. Okay, well, that's a curse. That's a curse. That's, that's like how somebody in our culture might say to somebody else, damn you, like when, when they're really angry. They might say, ah, you can go to hell for all I care. That's a judgment. That's a condemnation. And that is as serious a, a judgment as we find in all of scripture coming from Jesus. This is him saying, you can't escape the coming wrath. You will not escape hell. Like it's certain and I, didn't, I think we need to pause here. It is so important that we are careful when we talk about God's wrath and when we talk about hell so that we don't end up weaponizing this idea or this teaching, so that we don't end up terrorizing people who shouldn't be terrorized by it, or so we don't end up misrepresenting God. Now, you, if you've been around a while, you know I, probably, I almost never talk about hell 
you, I don't, I'm not sure if you've heard me talk about hell in the last two or three years in a, in a message. I just don't think it's usually necessary. It's not that I don't believe God judges. It's that I actually don't think it's usually necessary to invoke hell. But this time it is necessary because here Jesus wants the Pharisees to know that God has judged them and we need to be really clear about what that does and doesn't mean. Now, I think most of us, we would assume that the best way for God to stop evil is to stop the evildoers, right? That makes sense, right? And you've experienced this when you were small. If you talked back to your parents or if you mouthed off to them, they might have given you a spanking or they might have given you a, a time out, okay, in order to stop you from, from repeating that behavior. In our culture, if you break the law, if you do something to harm somebody else, we put you in jail, okay, in order to punish you, in order to stop that behavior. In ancient religions, it's kind of the same way. Like the, the, the ancient gods, the pagan gods, if you didn't please them, if you didn't worship them enough, if you didn't offer them enough sacrifices, they would curse you. And in the same way, I think many of us might assume that the best way for God to deal with the Pharisees is to hurt them and strike them down and to stop them from doing any more harm. But that is not how God's judgment works. So come with me for a minute. God's wrath isn't like our wrath. His judgment isn't like our judgment. Jesus says in verse 32, go ahead. Go ahead, Pharisees. Complete what your ancestors started. Like, go on. Do it. If you're going to do it, do it. Continue. Nobody's stopping you. Do you see that that's what Jesus says to them? And we read that and we're like, gosh, how could how can that be God's decision? How can it be that that's God's judgment? That's God's will, that they should continue rather than be stopped. And the reason is because that's exactly how God's wrath is expressed. That's exactly how God expresses his wrath. Let's come with, come with me, if you would, for a minute to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1. There we've got a, a passage where the Apostle Paul explains how mankind has rebelled against God. And now as a result, Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Okay, do you see that? God's wrath is being revealed. God's wrath is coming. Now, Paul's, Paul's making it clear the wrath is coming. It is being revealed. But the question is, how is it being revealed? And Paul's going to explain it, okay? How is God's wrath being revealed on earth? Is it by striking sinners down? Is it by sending disease or famine or earthquakes? No. No. In fact, three times in this passage, Paul is going to say that instead of striking sinners down, instead of stopping sinners, God is going to give them over. God gave them over. In verse 24, Paul says that, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, God, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And, and so here in the text where Paul explains God's wrath, sort of the, the primary wrath text in the New Testament, we could say, He's explaining that God's wrath isn't expressed by stopping evildoers. 
when God pours out his wrath on the, on the earth, it, it doesn't look like him stopping evildoers, but it looks like him giving them over to their evil desires. Now, that's very different, isn't it? He doesn't stop them. He removes the restraints. He gives them over. He stops stopping them. That's what God's wrath looks like. And so in the same way, if we come back to Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he tells the Pharisees, fine, go ahead, finish the job, do, we, do what you're going to do. Other, other translations, other versions of this passage use the, the language of fill up the measure of your guilt. It's a, a picture almost like a, like a glass or a pitcher full of guilt or full of evil, and it's not quite full yet. It's still got, there's still room for them to fill it up with more and more wrath or more and more guilt. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine a more horrible place to be? What could be worse than if God has given you over? What could be worse than that? What could be worse than if God stops stopping you? What could be worse than that? And at the final judgment, someday, the universe is going to see that God isn't some angry old man in the sky. He is holy and patient and merciful, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. On the other hand, he will judge, and he can't be bought. He, isn't, he doesn't play favorites. He is a perfect judge. And here, we've got these Pharisees who, in that culture, they know their Bible better than anyone and they decorate the tombs of the prophets, and they pray, and they wash, and they fast, and they look down on, on all the sinners, and it's they who are condemned. They're the ones who are condemned. They're the ones who are condemned. Now, that's not even the warning in this passage. Believe it or not, that's not even the warning here. Let's keep reading because there's a warning now for the church. And, and, and just as we have been doing all through this series, we want to translate these things into a warning or a, or a lesson for us as followers of Jesus today. So here's the warning. It, 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 it sort of begins here in verse 34 where Jesus makes a promise. He says, this is why I will send more prophets and I'll send more sages and I'll send more teachers and you will kill them and crucify them and flog them and you will hunt them from town to town like that's Jesus promise like you think you're so smart and progressive you think you've learned so much and you're so much better than your ancestors well you're wrong and you're blind and I'm warning you you're going to do it again you're going to kill the prophets that I send you and all of the blood of these martyrs and prophets, all their blood, right from Abel, who is the first martyr at the beginning of the Old Testament, all the way to Zechariah, who is the last martyr at the end of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament. So they're kind of like the bookends. All those martyrs, all the blood of all those martyrs, it is on you. It's on your hands. But of course you say, oh, this could never happen in our day. It could never happen in our day. In fact, I know some people who would say the same thing about us today in 2022. Except listen to this. Just a few years ago, 2018, you might have heard about uh, a missionary named John Allen Shaw. He's uh, just 26-year-old, is a missionary who, who tried to bring the gospel to the natives on North Sentinel Island uh, in the ocean south of India. And he died in the process. 
North Sentinel Island is one of the few places in the world that was never colonized by the West. The West, Western colonial, colonial, um, Western colonial countries never really had a um, an, an impact, never really arrived there, and so the, the natives are, are almost entirely untouched by Western culture. Well, John Allen Shaw, he had it in his mind and in his heart that God was calling him to bring the gospel, and he wasn't totally sure how he would do it, but he trusted God completely. And after months and months of training and, and collaborating with other missionaries and, and, and preparation, John paid a few visits to the island. And on his first visit, he, he arrived and he was so ecstatic and he yelled out to them in English, My name is John and I love you and Jesus loves you. My name is John, I love you and Jesus loves you. Well, the next day, John came back and this time he brought some gifts and one of the natives, actually a young boy, he pulled out his bow and arrow and he shot at John. And he shot an arrow that actually lodged itself in John's, John's Bible. John's life was saved by his Bible. Well, the next day John came back. And he paid a third visit and this time they killed him. In fact, his body was never recovered. And, and when that happened, the secular news media, they, they called him reckless and they called him a colonizer. And they said that he got what he deserved. And, and that, that part didn't surprise me. I'm not surprised when secular media say things that secular media would say. I don't, have, I don't expect them to, to speak any differently. What surprised me, though, was the judgment that came from people in the church. Listen to this. This is from Rod Dreher, who is a, a Christian and a journalist who writes for the American Conservative. He says, Chaw could not have preached to these people. Nobody speaks their language. How on earth could he have witnessed to them? If, if that were the only issue, Cha's attempt might have been merely foolish. Just an instance of, of the fatal enthusiasm of an immature young Christian. But Cha's stunt not only had absolutely no chance of success, it also stood to bring sickness and death to this tribe. Can you imagine? He might easily have been an angel of death for this tribe. The vanity and hubris of that man is really something. Well, he's, that's not the only Christian who criticized John Shaw after he lost his life bringing the gospel to this island. And another was um, a, an author named John Shore. He writes for the unfundamentalist. He's a progressive Christian who writes for the unfundamentalist. He says, this isn't martyrdom. This is zealotry. That's what he had to say about John Shaw. He says, and it's a good example of how the arrogance and selfishness of patriarchal religion and people cause them to force themselves on others without consent. He didn't die because of his faith. He died because of his pride and arrogance and foolishness. He made a bad decision. Natural consequences are not martyrdom. Now, you know, I am, I'm not easily offended, but that's offensive to me. That's offensive. Maybe it shouldn't be, though, because that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. God is going to send more prophets, and the, the progressives or, or, and the, you know, those who know better, they're going to attack them, too. They're going to flog them and crucify them and, and kill them. And as we translate this woe to the church, as we try to figure out what is the lesson that Jesus needs us or wants us to hear, how, how do we apply this in our churches? There is a lesson for us. We need to ask, would we recognize Jesus today? Would we? Would we be able to hear his voice? Would we know if it's him? Would I? Would I? 
I mean, these Pharisees are face to face with God's Messiah and they don't recognize him. I like to think that I would recognize Jesus, but the thing is, Jesus doesn't always behave the way that I think he should or the ways that the Pharisees thought he should. Isn't that right? Sometimes Jesus does things that, that sound or seem kind of like judgmental and they seem kind of intolerant or maybe black and white and and. And the relativist in me doesn't like that stuff. And sometimes Jesus does things that seem way too tolerant. And he hangs out with sinners and he, he reinterprets the scriptures as, as he pleases. And he, he gets himself involved in, in politics and social issues. And, and the fundamentalist in me doesn't like that. And so there is a lesson in here for us, isn't there? There's a lesson. The, 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 there's not just one way for us to blow it and miss God. There's actually two. There's two ways to miss God. You see, just when everybody thought that they had God figured out, both the liberals and the conservatives, he comes down, God comes down, and both the conservatives and the liberals team up, and not only did they fail to recognize him, they crucified him. They did that. They both did that. Both teams. And if we think... Oh, that could happen, never happen in our day. We haven't learned anything. We haven't learned anything. But the gospel says none of us can recognize Jesus on our own. All of us are running around with a, a monkey Christ. Okay? None of us can see the real thing on our own, yet he loves us and he forgives us and he accepts us anyway. And today... If we can recognize Jesus when we see him in others, or if we can recognize Jesus when we hear his voice in others, that is a miracle. Do you know why? Because it proves that we aren't under wrath, but under grace. If we were under wrath like the Pharisees, we wouldn't care. We wouldn't believe it. It wouldn't matter. We would believe that we've got God figured out. We have nothing left to learn. We have nothing that we need to repent of. There's nothing that needs to change in our lives. But if the gospel lands on us, and if we, if we can say, wow, I was wrong about this, or wow, I have a lot to learn about that, or wow, I still need Jesus after all this time. If you can say that, that is not a sign of judgment. That is proof of God's grace. It proves that you are a work in progress. You're a work in progress. And, and God hasn't given up on you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good news? Isn't it good to know that God hasn't given up on you? And in the same way, if the church has learned anything, it's this. That as we stop remaking God in our image, and as we stop fighting over the prophets, then we will be able, through the gospel, to recognize the real, living Jesus. That's when we'll be able to recognize Jesus. And then, as we recognize Jesus, then our city will be able to recognize Jesus in us. You with me on that? As we are able to recognize the real living Jesus, then the city will be able to recognize Jesus in us. Now, next week when we're together, we're going to have a, a guided conversation about some of the lessons that we've learned and some of the you know, connections that we've made during this uh, wo series of woes. And it's, it's going to be a guided discussion. I'll, I'll, I'll lead us and kind of guide us in a discussion actually of what 
what Hamilton needs from us, what, what use Hamilton has for the church. But what I'd like to do is close with something that I found on TikTok within the last couple of weeks. This guy's name is Abraham. He has a, a very popular uh, TikTok channel. He's got almost 2 million followers. And his, the point of his channel is he, he talks about his own journey and experience of, of deconstruction and leaving the church. And this particular video is called God Isn't Mad at You. And as you, as you listen to this, I, I think you'll observe, you'll, you'll notice that his view, uh, that he, the view that he argues for is actually very different from what I've said as I've tried to explain what you know, Jesus' words about, about wrath and judgment. Okay, so this guy, Abraham, he's saying something very different from what I've said. Watch, let's watch together. If you're only staying a Christian out of fear, especially if you're young and feeling pressured, I've got something interesting to tell you. God is not mad at you. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not being sentimental. I don't mean God loves you, so he's not angry at you. I mean, he literally can't be angry. Being offended requires two things. First, you have to be vulnerable enough to get hurt, and that's a kind of weakness. Second, you have to be unaware why this is all happening, and that's a kind of confusion. And according to most Christian dogma, God is not weak or confused. He can't be angry. Anger can only exist in the absence of control. Now, does the Bible say that God is angry? Yeah. But the Bible is a disparate group of writings that talks about several types of deity. Christianity amalgamated into one impossible mega-being. There are a lot of reasons it's hard to leave the church, but don't let God's fury be one of them. It's not real. And if you feel it, which I can relate to, that's your fear being weaponized against you. Now on the flip side, does God love you? Eh, that's for another video. Alright, I learned this way too late for it to be personally helpful to me on my way out, but maybe it'll hit you at the right time. Thanks for listening. Come on if you want to. Well, that's interesting, right? Now, in case you don't know, this man's full name is Abraham Piper. If you haven't heard of Abraham Piper, you might have heard of his father. His, his father is a famous pastor in the U.S. named John Piper. And I've, been a, a, I've, I've really benefited over the years from the teaching of John Piper. In fact, it would be hard for me to overstate his influence on my life. In fact, I remember over the years, I remember some sermons that were preached in the late 1990s and the early 2000s when John Piper praised God when Abraham came to faith and he was baptized. And today, Abraham is in a very different place. And that part doesn't surprise me. What surprises me, though, is that you can read the comments on Abraham Piper's TikTok videos and in those comments, you'll see tons of Christians who feel the need to share their view that Abraham Piper is a heretic, and he's lost, and he's an apostate, and his dad has failed him. His dad is a bad father. His dad has failed him as a dad. And after, after this woe, I, wanna, I just want to ask us, but like, isn't there anything that we could learn from this guy? Does, is there anything that we could take from it? Anything we could learn from this? I actually think so. Now, am I saying Abraham Piper is a prophet? No, I am not. What I'm, what I, in fact, I actually can't find any reason to treat him as an authority on the things that he's talking about. It, it's, it's not totally different from the old woman who repainted Jesus in Spain. He's, he's no more qualified to teach on God's anger than she was to repaint this masterpiece. And so, no, he's, he's not a prophet. At the same time, 
Could God teach us about Jesus through an Abraham Piper? Could he teach us about, could he teach us something about Jesus through Abraham Piper? Absolutely. I absolutely think so. In fact, if we had time, I think we could have a great conversation about things that we could learn from people who've left the church over the years, for all, who, who've left for all sorts of reasons. And like, like, like we're allowed to listen. We're allowed to listen and learn. Okay, it, it is good for us to be able to show love and respect and not be so quick to crucify people. That's a really good posture for the church to take in our culture, isn't it? And I think when we are open to hearing Jesus speak in surprising ways, and when we're open to hearing Jesus speak from surprising sources, I think that that's when we will recognize his voice. That's when we'll recognize his voice. And so today, I really believe God calls us to stop looking down on all the hypocrites and all the false prophets around us and all the people who've disappointed us and and, and all all the jerks and idiots and fools to stop looking down at them and to look up at Christ. He's tapping us on the shoulder today and I think he's asking, do you know me do you remember me? Do you recognize me? So Sure, you're going to deconstruct all the man-made religion stuff. Sure, go ahead and deconstruct if you want to. But is that really going to help you find me? Sure, you have your, your friends and they've heard you name all the problems in the church. They've heard you list all the hypocrites that you can't stand and all the churches that are, that are blowing it with me. And, and, and your friends have heard you talk about that at end. But do they know that you know me? Do your friends know that you know me? Sure, you can quote some some great teachers and prophets, but do you recognize my voice? Sure, you can list all the people and all the things that you're against, but do you know me? Are you for me? Do you recognize me? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.